Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. For many of us during this COVID-19 pandemic, quarantine has been difficult. A huge number of us are working from home, and those of us with children are homeschooling as well. Add to that cold and rainy spring weather, and you've got a perfect storm for challenging parenting. In an effort to help out, I thought we'd spend a few weeks equipping, challenging, and encouraging parents. Now, I realize that many of you are not parents, or maybe your children are out of the house. But you may have grandchildren, nieces, nephews, or other children in your life. I'm sure some of you plan to have children someday as well. This parenting class will help you both understand ways in which our culture is hurting our children and how the scriptures can guide us in a better direction. Also, this class will introduce you to some new voices that you haven't heard on Restitutio up until now, and uh, you'll have to stay tuned to find out who that will be. So I'm excited and looking forward to how this class can help you. Our first session is called Preparing Our Kids for the Road. The simple fact is that our children are going to suffer at different times in their lives. They're going to face failure, rejection, and disappointment. This is absolutely unavoidable for everyone. Don't you agree? Rather than protecting them from everything, however, our goal as parents is to prepare them for life in the real world. Here now is episode 325, Preparing Our Kids for the Road. In their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Lukanoff and Haidt discuss three lies that have overtaken I-generation, I-gen, which is, uh, they, they designated as kids born after 1995. And this is a little description of this book. This is, for your information, this is not a Christian book. And uh, it's, it's very much a psychologist, sociologist type book. But it has some really interesting and important information to help us understand where the culture is heading or has already headed, especially for the people that fall into the category that our kids are in. And so this is a little description of the book. It says, First Amendment expert Greg Lukanoff and social psychologist Jonathan Haidt show how the new problems on campus, college campuses, have their origins in three terrible ideas that have become increasingly woven into American childhood and education. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So that's fragility. Number two, always trust your feelings. And number three, life is a battle between good people and evil people, which is tribalism. These three great untruths contradict basic psychological principles about well-being and ancient wisdom for many cultures. Embracing these untruths and the resulting culture of safetyism interferes with young people's social, emotional, and intellectual development. It makes it harder for them to become autonomous adults who are able to navigate the bumpy road of life. Uh, so that's what this book is about, and I'm going to be using that as a, uh, somewhat of a background for what I'm sharing. I have a copy of it here if anybody wants to take a look at it. It's got some really interesting things to say, but I want to just look at these three things fragility, trusting your emotions, and tribalism, and describe a little bit about what's going on in our society, and then show how the Bible can meet that need in a way that, as parents, we can sort of prepare our kids to enter this kind of world. All right, so these are the three main, uh, you might call them cultural currents. Number one, our children are fragile and should be protected. Uh, Number two, our children should always trust their feelings. And number three, our children should regard those who disagree with them as evil. Tribalism. Uh, That's the idea that this is my group and everyone outside my group is hopelessly lost and evil and has terrible intentions, right? So you can almost sense the childishness of that. Children, by default, uh, go into that mode. But as parents, a lot of what our job is is helping them out of their defaults, isn't it? If children were just... Did, did all, always the right thing by default, parenting would be so easy, right? <laughs> but alas, that's not the, tr- the case. All right, so the question is, are our kids fragile or resilient? So when I think about 
the human body, the physical body. I've got a picture of Mary Katani here on the bottom. Uh, she's like my favorite runner that I love to hate because she's just a perfect specimen and she runs for Kenya, not America, so I don't like her. But I have to admit that she is absolutely the best. She just won the New York Marathon in November. She wins everything, doesn't matter. Um, and the way she strengthens her body is by pushing it beyond what feels comfortable. That's how you get better, just taking running as an example. Anything physical, it works the same way. If, you're, if you want to think about lifting weights in a gym, right? If you just lift what weights are comfortable for you and that are easy, you know what's going to happen to your muscles? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing. Or, or maybe just not much, right? And uh, so the way, the way to, to build muscle or to build endurance is to push beyond what's comfortable, but not so far that you get injured, right? So there is that sweet spot where uh, you're, you're, you're growing, but you're not getting injured. And that's what builds resilience and adaptations in our physical bodies, right? Well, so it is with our minds. Think about it. A weak-minded person cannot resist his or her impulses. A weak-minded person just says whatever comes to mind, does whatever, they, whatever they're inclined to do, right? That's, that's, that's a weakness where your sort of like inner impulses are just like running the show. A strong-minded person is able to control their impulses and do the right thing even when their impulse is in a different direction. I think of the example of Jesus for that. And I was thinking, okay, well, it's biblically, what, what would a... Uh, uh, a weak-minded person or a fragile-minded person in Scripture be? And, I, and I, I thought of Saul, King Saul, a really great example of somebody who, a really great negative example, somebody who you should not follow, okay? Uh, so the first uh, text I have is 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 through 14. It says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So you get the picture here. Saul is waiting for Samuel to arrive so that he can do this uh, sacrifice, this religious service to God. And Saul's waiting and waiting, and, and he, he wants to go attack the Philistines. But his, his troops are starting to scatter. They're starting to be like, well, I guess we're not going. I'm going to go home, you know. And you, you get people just wandering off. And so instead of waiting, what does Saul do? He was too worried, too nervous. He couldn't uh, stand the stress of the situation. So he forced himself to offer the sacrifice. And after he, he did it, and he's not a priest. He shouldn't be offering sacrifices. He's not even of the right tribe. Uh, and He's of the tribe of Benjamin, right? So... As soon as he arrives or finishes, Samuel shows up. And Samuel's like, you did the sacrifice without me? You know, like, this is the whole point of me coming here. Uh, verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. I mean, that is a big statement. Right? It seems like such a mundane thing, right? Oh, well, he didn't show up on time. Samuel's late. So I'm just going to do his job for him. And maybe when he comes, he'll apologize. That's not the setup here. The setup here is Samuel is a proxy for God. You know, he's the mouthpiece, the prophet, the seer. And he had told Saul what God wanted, which is he, he wanted him to do the sacrifice at this certain time, and that Saul was disobeying God, right? And so you have the people, and then you have the commandment of God. The people are like, I'm out of here. The sacrifice hasn't been made. We're not going to battle anytime soon. I'm just going to go check on my friends over here or check on my kids or whatever. And uh, Saul says, oh, no, this is terrible. Let's, let's do the sacrifice. And so he violates the commandment of God. And look at the consequence for that. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. So God's serious. I mean, he wants 
his people to obey him. He doesn't want us to just do whatever seems right in our own eyes. Uh, let's look at another example, chapter 15. I, I could probably give you quite a few from Saul's life. He's chuck full of examples about <laughs> what not to do. And Samuel came to Saul. This is uh, 1 Samuel 15, 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, this is one of the most classic lines of the whole Old Testament, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? The commandment included to kill the animals. So he's like, what's all this noise? Saul said, they have brought, they, the people have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." Verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and so on. Why did you not, verse 19, obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. All right, verse 21, but the people took of the spoil. So who is Saul? Saul's the kind of guy that when the people, he's a people pleaser, when the people come up to him and say, Saul, you know, we really should take these animals to sacrifice to God. Saul says, no, you know, I've got this command. And then the people are like, don't be an idiot, Saul. We've all agreed. You should do this. And so then Saul goes with the flow. And he's got, he's got no backbone. He's fragile. He's weak-minded. He can't hold his resolve in the face of opposition. This is sometimes it's all the kids, all at once. Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And so you have to be strong-minded. Chapter 18, verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Mm. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Once again, that's weak-mindedness. That's this fragility where he's allowing uh, what others around him are, are saying and doing to control his mental state. He's not in control of his own mental state. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is, yes, David is killing a lot of Philistines, for Saul, as Saul's soldier. That's the truth. David is not trying to usurp the kingdom. David is the most loyal man in the entire kingdom. So there's literally no reason for jealousy at all. And yet, Saul lets this, this thought creep into his head until it poisons his mind, until he raves mad. I mean, he just loses it. He starts chasing David all over the place, right? So... It's another example of that. So what's the opposite of fragility? Well, that's got to be resilience, right? Think about David. So you have Saul, then you have David. Where did David get the ability to live in caves outdoors for years when he's hunted by Saul? Think about that. Have you ever camped for a month? I've never camped for a week, I don't think. No, definitely not. I don't think I've made it three nights. I mean, he camped for years. And he didn't even have a tent. You know, he's just, well, maybe he had like a leather tent or something, but not like our tents, right? He's in caves. And this is the lifestyle that David leads year after year as he's being chased unjustly for crimes he never committed. That's resilience. And when David has the moment and Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself, what does David do? Does he give in to his impulses? Does he say, ah, oh, yes, I got him. <laughs> Slice his neck? No, no. He cuts a little piece of his robe, and just that, just that, he's, he's torn up. See how soft his heart is? So that's, that's, to me, a great example of resilience. So where did David get that resilience from? I think of him as a boy tending those sheep. You know, if you're tending sheep, you're outside. And uh, somehow he was able to deal with, you know, shepherds that deal with the weather, he, there was a toughness built into David from his life experiences. You remember the time Samuel came to Jesse, David's father, and he said, you know, I've got to anoint one of these boys. They didn't even call David in. 
He's just, oh, he's out with the sheep. You know, that's his job. That's his chores. It tells you something about parenting, right? That there, there is, there is uh, this uh, benefit that giving kids responsibility and helping them to deal with adversity can build a toughness in them. But not a, you see David's heart. You read the Psalms. His heart is still soft. So he's tough, but he's still soft at the same time. And that's really a, a goal for me. And I hope for you as well with our, with our kids. I want to tell you a little story about my son Noah, who broke his phone. Noah had saved and saved and saved for this phone. My goodness, they're so expensive now. And, uh, of course, he's buying it used anyhow, but it's still hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And he saved. It took him forever, months. He got a decent smartphone. He finally got it. Oh, boy. It's like the, the, the choirs of angels were singing. He opened the box. Oh! And he's out there, and he's, you know, he's just in love with his new phone. He's outside, and the boys are playing basketball. And one of the boys throws the ball at Noah. And Noah's not looking, and he's also not playing basketball. He just happens to be out there. The basketball hits his phone, and the phone hits the ground. And it's not just shattered. It's so shattered that the screen will not even light up when you turn it on. I mean, it's ultimate shattered. Of course, Ruth and I look into it. We're like, OK, how much does it cost to fix this thing? And it's like the same price he paid for it, literally, because it was a used phone. What does my son do? Well, he's upset. You can understand, right? And he's making his case. He says, Dad, I'm totally innocent. Mom, I didn't do anything. This kid, and it wasn't one of our kids, this kid threw this ball at me. I wasn't even playing basketball. It's just so unfair. You know, uh, uh, middle schoolers can uh, exaggerate a little bit. And uh, I can't believe this. I don't know how I'm going to go on. And, uh, you know, it, 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 and he was right. You know, he was just totally robbed of this, this thing he had worked so hard for. He had earned this money over months. And in a moment, it was gone. Every fiber in my being wanted to buy that boy a new phone. A new used phone, just to be clear. <laughs> Everything did. But we have a policy. We have a policy in our house. When it comes to non-essentials, like we'll buy them underwear if they need them, right? A coat, those, those kinds of things, you know, anytime, you know, if, if there's a, a, a genuine need. But when it comes to optional stuff, to toys and to other things like this, we say to them, look, you've got your birthday, you've got Christmas. And uh, poor Noah, both of those are in the winter for him. And this happened in the summer. <laughs> so we got ourselves a dilemma. And... Uh, we don't really want to teach our kids about credit and, uh, you know, we'll give it to him now and then he'll wait and pay. No, we're not doing all that. So I say to him, look, you're just going to have to wait until Christmas to get a new, to get a new phone. And, you know, we'll buy you a phone, but we're going to buy it for Christmas because that's when we buy you presents. Uh, we don't buy you presents in June. You know, it's just not, it's not how, there's only so much money. And, um, you know, that was, that was really probably one of the hardest parenting decisions I had ever made, you know, because it was, it was clear that he was an innocent victim, and I could make it right. I could make it, uh, I, could, I, I could buy him a new phone. I, I really could. But, it, but it, was, it, it would have set a precedent for what would come in the future. And so five months later, or however long it was, I don't, I don't remember exactly how long it was. You could ask my wife. She probably remembers the story better than I do. Uh, we got him a new phone. And he paid for part of it too, right? I think he partially subsidized it. Because even just a new used phone is beyond our Christmas budget per kid. So he, he still contributed to it. And he learned some things as a result of this. Some things that I couldn't, I couldn't use my words to teach him. He learned that phones aren't disposable. They're not disposable. He, he learned that money has value. It's not just like growing on trees, right? You ever hear your parents say that? Money doesn't grow on trees. What do you, right? He learned that. He learned patience. And he learned to be more careful in the future. Because now that he's suffered five months, how much more does he cherish this precious little screen, my precious? <laughs> do you think he's going to sit outside while other people are playing basketball and have his phone out right over the driveway? 
I don't think so. Not anymore. Because he knows then he'd have to wait until the whole next series. Or he could earn the money. We always told him that. And we always gave him ideas on that. Like, hey, look, if you want to earn the money, Mr. Johnson next door, his leaves are piling up, son. They're piling. You want me to go over there with you? I'll tell you exactly what to you know. So, like, if he wants to earn the money, he's welcome to earn the money. All right. So that's an example of building a kind of resilience. So, look, let's say he's in college. He, he, he drops his phone. It breaks. It's not the end of the world. He's been here before, and he survived. He's been through a little hardship. And so that is actually something that can train him. But we also want to be careful not to employ so much hardship in our children's lives that it totally discourages them and that it, it overwhelms them and that they become uh, disheartened. Think, think of back to the, the weightlifting example, right? Or running. Same thing with running. If you run uh, more than your body can handle, you'll get an injury. Guaranteed. Like if we all went out right now and just started running and didn't stop, for however long, you know, an hour or two hours, or, you know, I, I don't know, Masterson might be able to go three hours. He's so fit back there. But, uh, you know, at some point, you would get an injury. You'd get a blister. You'd get a, a, a sprain in your ankle. You'd get uh, some sort of knee pain. Timmy Paul would last maybe six hours. But then eventually, even Timmy Paul would, uh, would suffer some sort of physical malady. Right? Because there's a limit to how much stress we could put on our bodies. Right? So it is with our kids. We want to apply stress to them. We want to allow hardship to happen to them, but in a way that they are able to handle it and build up resilience, toughness, so they could be like David. And if they get persecuted at their job, they don't just freak out. They can handle it with dignity and strength. All right, so number two here is always trust your feelings. This is the, uh, the second major uh, cultural current that uh, this book points out. Have you ever heard the slogans, be yourself, be true to yourself, I have to do this for me, accept yourself, find what works for you, no one can tell you who you are, live your truth. Right? These, are, these are sayings that we have in our culture that when I was a kid, nobody talked like this, ever. I never heard any of these sayings. You know, maybe I just lived in a strange place. Did you hear those sayings growing up, Marianne? It was all the opposite, right? It was all about aligning yourself to adults' expectations rather than you being the, the uh, center of the world. So many in the iGen have imbibed the notion that their emotions are reliable guides. So if you feel threatened, then you're, you're in danger. That's not true a lot of the time, right? Sometimes you feel threatened and you're not in danger, you just, you just feel threatened, and then, you know, once you reason it through, you're like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not about to die. It's okay. No one's about to assault me. <laughs> and so there, uh, the book uh, deals with some of these incidents at college campuses, prestigious college campuses, where a speaker, a controversial speaker, gets invited in, and what ends up happening is this, the students self-organize using social media what they do is they form a, a mob. They form a mob and they get violent. And what they say is that they don't want to allow someone who is emotionally threatening to some segment of the student body to come onto their campus. They respond to an emotional threat with a physical threat. This is, this is what has happened at quite a number of campuses that these, uh, these guys mentioned where they, they, will, they will verbally assault and they will physically assault. They will beat you with a, with a pipe. Uh, and, and these riots and mobs will break out at these college campuses. These kids just lose it. Um, and, and, and they're like, well, why, why is this? One of the things that they believe is that their emotions are reliable guides. I call it the Elsa syndrome. This is from the song, Let It Go. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. So that's uh, how she felt when she was under her parents' supervision, or actually it wasn't her parent, it was her sister, right? When she was in the palace. And then later on, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, let it go, let it go. So now she's out there and she's living her best life now. She's above morality. 
You know why she's above morality? You know, you know why there's no right and no wrong for her anymore? Because she's being true to herself. And if you're true to yourself, it's above right and wrong. Isn't that bizarre? That is absolutely a lie. There is still right and wrong for Elsa. And she froze that town. She froze that town. She needs to take responsibility for that. So here's the problem with the Elsa mindset where you just automatically trust your feelings. Let's imagine for a moment a real-life situation. You're at the McDonald's. You're confronted with a long line of cars at the drive-thru. You've got the kids in the car. Expectations are high that they're going to get some, some McDonald's. And uh, you can't go to the drive-thru. So, you know, it's like 12 cars. So you decide to go inside. And you go inside, and you can't believe it at first. There's only one person there. All right, you've got all the staff buzzing around like bees in the back. And there's only one customer. I mean, can you imagine it? 12 cars outside. You come inside, only one customer in line. It's your lucky day. So you stroll up behind the person. You're standing there. And wouldn't you know it, this is the one customer that's got to have everything explained. What's the dollar menu? <laughs> they're asking questions like this. And um, they're taking forever, forever. And everything's complicated. This is, this is one of these kind of people that, it, you know, they, they say, have it your way. Bad idea, right? Because now it's like, all right, well, I want this kind of bun, but no pickle, and then this thing on the side, and then this one over here. And what's in that special sauce anyhow? And it's, it's taking forever. It's taking forever. And just when you think, I mean, you're, you're just like, I've got an appointment. I've got a meeting to get to. And at a certain point, I have to cut losses and leave with no food. So imagine the stress of that situation, right? It's just building inside you. And then the person, so you think it's over. The person uh, behind, the, the employee says, would you like to donate a dollar to the Ronald McDonald House? This guy says, what's the Ronald McDonald House? I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> so now you, and then just then you see the last car that you would have been behind pull off. Now, look, if you're allowed to trust your feelings, you can go ahead to that person and in your best Chris Farley voice say, for the love of God, just go, right? You remember when he would do that? For the love of God, just get your food and go, right? If you're trusting your emotions, that's what your emotions are telling you. Either that or pick up the person and throw them, right? <laughs> Because you get back to that car and you cut your losses, there's no food. How are the kids going to treat you? It's going to be like World War III. But that's, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Look, your spirit, your, your emotions, your inclinations, your impulses, right, they are not to be, from a, a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, they are not to be controlling you and making your decisions for you. You make your decisions, and you, you can take it into, into consideration your emotions, your feelings, your intuitions. I think that's wise to do that. But you don't put them in the driver's seat. That, that first verse there, Jeremiah, says you can't trust your heart. It's tricky. It's deceitful. Uh, Proverbs 12, 16 says, The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. You want to be prudent? We want our kids to be prudent. We have to teach them to not just do whatever uh, their emotions are telling them. And then, of course, Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. You hear that? Look at it again, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's opposition here, right? You've got the, you've got the Spirit, and we're, we're supposed to walk by it. Can we not walk by it? Sure. We can just ignore the promptings of God, right? We can, we can do that. And then you have the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, verse 17, are against 
the spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And if we stop the list right there, it's a perfect description of what I face in my children every day. Uh, but then we keep going. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's like, well, thankfully, they're not that bad. <laughs> I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look, that's the stakes here. It's just like with Saul. You know, Saul didn't think it was a big deal. Hey, the people are leaving. I got to do something. I got to do something. I'm not going to trust, trust what God said. I'm going to do something. And he forces himself. And Samuel says, look, the kingdom's now taken away from you. God's going to find someone better than you to do the job. That was the moment when that happened. And if we allow these things to go unchecked in our own lives, these uh, desires of the flesh, or in our children's lives, this is the consequence. Look at this. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hello? This is, these are big stakes here. We, we need to help our children not to just default to gratifying the desires of their flesh but instead to train them to walk by the Spirit. And obviously, ultimately, they're going to be judged on the basis of what they decide when they're adults. But there's an, a, a very big aspect of this that we can make it easier for them to sort of pre-install some of this in them as their children. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So what's the opposite of trusting emotions? What do you think? Walking by the Spirit. Spirit. Yeah. What else? Reason. Reason. Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could trust a lot of other things. You could trust the, the law of the land. You could trust an institution, trust other people, right? I mean, there's lots of external sources to trust uh, when it comes to uh, not trusting our emotions. But the simple fact is, sometimes our emotions are right. Sometimes you have an intuition. It's not fully reasoned out, but it's actually true, and you should trust it. So what am I saying? I'm, I'm saying sometimes your emotions are reliable and, and true, and, and many times, probably most of the time, our emotions are deceiving us, tricking us into thinking one thing when the reality is different. So how do you know what to do? Well, what we need is a guide to sift our emotions, right? If I didn't have that list that I just read to you, how would I know those things are wrong? We think, oh, it's just obvious. It's not just obvious. You can find societies where uh, drunkenness is totally accepted, normal behavior, right? The Romans practiced orgies. It was normal. It wasn't a big deal. Envy. I mean, these, these things are not obviously wrong or against human flourishing. We know it's the case from what the scripture says. As, and as, as we live it out, we see that we do have a better life as a result. So what we need to, to help our children, ourselves, but also our children, is, is to help them to see that we need an external guide or direction, compass, source to tell us how to judge what we think inside of ourselves, which things are, are good and which things are bad. And the way we do that is we go to the scriptures and we can see what God says is good and what God says is bad. And that's our external standard by which we can judge ourselves. And, and look, you know, as your kids are young, right, as our kids are young, we are the ones that are doing that always. It's not like they're going to be like, well, Dad, I, the other day I was reading in Ephesians chapter 3 and uh, came across this verse and I've really been pondering it all day, just meditating on it in fervent prayer. And I stopped eating today, too, just because I'm... Fasting. Like, look, if your kid ever comes up to you and says something like that, I want to just, like, bring you up here and put a gold star on you, all right? Because you're doing something right. Uh, but, you know, generally, it's the parent that has to bring in the standard and say, hey, what you did right there when you punched your brother in the face because he called you an idiot, this says you're not supposed to give in to those passions. That you're supposed to love your enemies. I don't want to love my enemies. Well, it's still the right thing to do. And by re repetition and teaching them over and over, they, they get this sense within themselves, what we call morality, what's right and what's wrong. And then now they're in the school playground or they're up in some other situation. And then 
they, they have to still choose to do what's right or wrong, but at least they know. And they know that just doing whatever, you know, is being true to themselves, whatever that even means, is, is not the way to do things. That there is this other source. And I think of Jesus, too, in uh, Gethsemane. Did Jesus want to die? Did he want to suffer torture? Did he want to have people make fun of him and, and strip him and beat him? No, of course not. Jesus wasn't up there, uh, you know, with, with the, the Roman soldiers and they whip him and he says, oh, yes, give me, give me another one. That's not the, the scenario at all. He, he hated it. He despised it. Right? It says in Luke twenty two forty one, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see that? This is the goal right here. That's the goal for me. That's the goal for my kids. That they would have that mindset. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the goal right there. Because you think about Jesus right in that moment at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating. He's, it says, actually says right there, he's in agony. You see that? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is in agony. Why? He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to go through the suffering. That's what his emotions are telling him. If he's true to himself, guess what happens to the rest of us? No salvation. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus is there at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, oh, man, I've got I to be authentic. I've got to be true to myself. I'm out of here. He just ditches the disciples, right? No, he stayed there. He knew they were coming to arrest him, and he stayed there. And when they said, which, which one of you is Jesus? He's ready. He's ready to go. You know why? Because he had this moment. He prayed, he went to God, and he said, you know what? I don't want to do this. And if there's no other way, not my will, but yours be done. This is our example for how to control ourselves is that we're always saying God's will be done in my life in this situation. And that's really the gold star, the ultimate that we're looking forward to in parenting. Jesus fought his fears and anxieties. He wrestled them down and made them submit to his will. That's what we've got to teach our kids to do. Wrestle down your fear. Wrestle down your concern. Wrestle it down and make it submit to your will. You are in control of your emotions. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> when the kid's flopping around on the ground. <laughs> Doesn't seem like they're in control. But, you know, maybe that's where they're at now. But the goal is still to have them be in control. And then, once they're in control, give that control to God and say, not my will, but yours be done. All right, let's look at the third one here, tribalism. Uh, I've got some scriptures on this. Uh, tribalism is a universal human flaw. It's something that we naturally fall into. Uh, just think of any sports team that has a, a, a cult-like following and uh, real or imagined enemies of other sports teams, right? And, and you, can, you can think of tribalism. You can think of how countries treat each other or ethnic groups or races. This is all the same kind of thing. We see it in Jesus' disciples. Look at this, Mark 9, 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> what is that? This guy's doing a good thing, and they're like, well, you're not allowed to use the name of Jesus. That's copyrighted. You know, that's our, that's our group's little, little thing. This is what we do. You're not with us? Get, get out of here. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So uh, Jesus puts the kibosh on the, the, the tribalism there, this idea that somebody else doing the same thing means that they're competing or somehow uh, taking something inappropriately. Jesus is like, let them have it. This is good. <laughs> and then uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. This is one of my favorite ones. It's just so, it's just so, so bad. Uh, to, to make preparations for him. So his disciples are going ahead to, to Samaria to make preparations. Verse 53, But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, 
Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So that's that tribalism, you know, that us versus them mentality. The Samaritans rejected us. So uh, it doesn't look, I mean, maybe they're joking around. You know, it's hard to get tone with text, right? But, like, just imagine for a moment, what if they were serious? What if they were, like, really, like, okay, we saw Elijah do this in the Bible. There were these people coming to arrest him. He called fire down and it burned the people up. He's like, well, it's on the table. It's an option. It's the nuclear option, but it's an option. <laughs> Jesus, do you think we should do the fire thing? Should we torture him? Jesus is just like, no. He rebukes them. But that's that, that's that tribalism. Now, there is, I want to be clear, there is a dualism in Scripture. There is a uh, sense of us versus them, sheep and the goats, the saved and the damned, the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers. But that, that boundary, that boundary of the body of Christ, the believers, is permeable. It's not a closed boundary. It's an open boundary. And, and sad, it breaks our heart when it happens, but sometimes people leave. So, sometimes people leave that boundary. Uh, and, they, and they go back into the world. And, and sometimes people come in and we rejoice. And we're like, hey, you know, welcome to the family. We're so glad you're here. You know, let's do this thing together. So that boundary is permeable. And that really sets up the whole purpose for which the church exists on this, wor- on this world. And that is to make disciples, to, to invite others into the faith and then grow together in godliness. So Christianity has a really interesting take on the whole tribalism thing. We, we are tribal in the sense that we believe that there is a boundary, there are people in it, and there are people outside of it. We do believe that. But we believe that you could come in and out of that boundary and that the, our purpose is to bring people into the boundary. Uh, and what's, what's also interesting about Christianity is that we've been doing uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational fellowship from generation one, really from the very beginning of after the resurrection and the ascension and the spirit getting poured out, right from then on, we have been doing this. And so the boundary has never been set based on race or language or nationality. It's been set based on faith, which any human can have, young, old, you know, wherever you're coming from, whatever, whatever background. That's, that's really something that we, we, we need to consider. When I, when I think about it, I think also of the Bereans in Acts 17.11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is a mindset we want to instill in our kids, the Berean mindset. It uh, uses this term, uh, noble. We want to install a noble mind in our children. A noble mind, in the context of this verse, Acts 17, 11, is like this. I'm not going to believe it because you said it, but I'm going to listen and then check it against the scriptures. That's a noble mindset. A, uh, an arrogant mindset says, I already know everything. Why should I listen to you? That's an arrogant mindset. Somebody that is too open-minded, you've got a major problem there, too. Oh, everything you say, I believe you, I believe them. Oh, you told me something totally contradicts, I'll just go with that, sure. That's, so, so you're, you're so open-minded, your brain fell out. You know, I mean, that's, that's not, we don't want that. We call that what, gullible, naive. That's what we call that, right? So we don't want, we don't want arrogance, we, won't, we don't want naivete, but we want a mixture of humility and discernment. And that's really something that we need to teach our kids because, look, our society is getting more and more polarized by the day. And there's more and more of this tribalism in social media than, I, than we've, we've had in a long time. I mean, I don't know the whole history of America, but like th- it, we are at a, a very divided moment as far as especially politics, but also a lot of other social issues that are constantly in the news, right? And so as a result of that, that's the world our kids are coming into. Our kids are not coming into your world that you came into. It's a different world. So, they, so we got to equip them to, to not get sucked into this us versus them. Oh, all Democrats are morons. No, all Republicans are morons. Can we train our kids better than that? I think we can. 
Some Democrats are morons and some Republicans are morons. <laughs> Already we have something better, because why? Because our boundary called Christianity includes Democrats and Republicans, believe it or not. I don't know if I just blew your mind right there. It includes Giants fans and Patriots fans. You know, it, it includes people from America and from the Middle East. <laughs> you know, there are Christians all over the world in all these different places and they're in that boundary. That's our family. That's our tribe. And our goal is to bring other people in. I think you get the point. All right, so to review, we have three main cultural currents going on in uh, the coddling of the American Mind book that they mention. They call them untruths because they're excessively PC. I, I had never learned the word untruth before. It was called a lie where I came from. And I think the dictionary backed me up on that. But uh, anyhow, Here's what they are. Our children are fragile and should be protected. Number two, our children should always trust their feelings. And number three, our children should regard those who disagree with them as evil. And so what I'm suggesting is that instead we say our children are resilient and should be challenged. And look, it's your job because you're the coddler. Let's face it. If somebody's going to coddle them, it's going to be you. It's going to be you that's going to alleviate their, their, their emotional stress and, and give them what they want. And many times that's not helping them. So we need to challenge them, but proportional to what the child's age is and what their maturity can handle. Number two, our children should always not trust their emotions, but trust what God says is right. Now, what's our access point to what God says is right? The scripture. I mean, God can speak to us directly as well through the spirit, right? But uh, the scripture is right there for us. And when the scripture comes to us through the spirit as well. And then number three, our children should regard those who disagree with them as potential brothers and sisters, and be humble. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm not sure really what happened on the recording here, but uh, that was pretty much the final point. Thanks for making it to the end here. Just wanted to let you know that I have that book in the link for the show notes for this episode. Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Really just some fascinating studies in there about the iGen culture that are currently in college. So check that out. Also, I put out a little article called Jesus, the Son of Man a few days ago. Just wanted to let you know about that. It's uh, an article that works its way through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it stops at some intertestamental literature along the way so that we can see the development of this idea of Son of Man from the oldest times where it basically just means a human being, especially in Ezekiel, for example, and then how that one really spectacular prophecy in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 later was understood to be a title for the ruler of the age to come, basically synonymous with Messiah in the intertestamental period. And so when Jesus went around town calling himself the Son of Man, he rather brilliantly left the whole question of what that phrase means up to the listeners. Uh, so your average person just hearing him refer to himself in the third person as the Son of Man, this, and the Son of Man, that, it's just thinking that Jesus is a humble person. He keeps calling himself a human being, a human being, human being. But the, the attentive listener would begin to ask him or herself, Ooh, do you think he means he's the Son of Man, as in the prophesied ruler who receives glory and a kingdom and power from the Ancient of Days. And that really put the ball in people's court whether or not they had faith in him. Uh, I recently did get an email about this. Somebody had written in asking for some insight onto the term because I, I realized that a lot of times evangelicals these, these days, all the rage is to classify the Son of Man title as a divine title, and usually use the, the phrase heavenly figure. This is a divine, heavenly figure that comes up to the ancient of days. Nonsense. That's not at all what this title means. Uh, and if you read Daniel 7 carefully, you'll see that the Son of Man is not at all a co-equal, much less co-eternal, co-essential member of the Godhead. No, it's a separate figure. And in Daniel 7, originally, it simply represented a kingdom, whereas the other kingdoms are represented by animals and beasts. The kingdom of God is represented by a human being. 
And so I, I see no reason to give in to this trend among evangelicals to look at Son of Man as some sort of divine title. I see it much more as a human being whom God endows with absolutely top-level authority to rule on his behalf over the age to come. And that's really what we see in especially certain of Jesus' usages of this term, whereas others it just seems to mean that he is referring to himself as a human being. So to check that article out, if you're interested, you can find it on restitudio.org. Of course, it's not here on the podcast. And I just want to mention that our last episode, episode 324, Original Sin Debate 2, uh, has been getting some comments on the site. If you'd like to add your comment to the mix, that was the debate between Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weirwell. Uh, feel free to come on there. We've got comments on there from Brian Allen and Troy Salinger and Ben, and they're saying some interesting things. So uh, check that out if you haven't already. I was thinking also to try out something on Zoom. Uh, I'd be curious to see how it goes. You see, today's Thursday. Yesterday, Wednesday night, I have my Bible study, which we usually do in our home just north of Albany, New York. And uh, since the quarantine session has been keeping us from having any kind of gatherings, we've been meeting on Zoom. And uh, I noticed that the last uh, couple of weeks, some folks from outside the area have been joining in on that. And I was thinking, wow, I wonder if the Restitutio community would like to have uh, some sort of meeting or social time to, to meet and greet each other somewhat face-to-face, face-to-digital-face. Uh, so I was thinking about trying that out this Sunday. If you're interested in joining in that, take a look at our Facebook group. Uh, you just search Restitutio on Facebook, and you'll be able to find the page and, and the group as well. And uh, in the group, I'll post the link for the Zoom meeting, and uh, it'd be great to have a little conversation face-to-face. So we'll see how that goes. It'll be an interesting experiment. I don't know if Sunday night works for you, but I'm thinking uh, Sunday night in the evening, maybe around 7 o'clock. I haven't fully decided. Take a look at the Facebook group for more details on that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org, where you can also leave a comment about today's episode on parenting. I hope to see you online, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.